welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we look at the worsening humanitarian crisis and civil war in Myanmar. Since the military coup against Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy Party in February 2021, there have been over 5,000 attacks that either targeted civilians or caused harm to them. The COVID pandemic is out of control, with thousands of people dying every day and the exact amount of COVID being impossible to ascertain. To bring us up to date with the situation in Myanmar, Debbie Stoddard from the Alternative ASEA Network on Burma joins me on today's program. She starts off here by introducing herself. This is Debbie Stoddard, founder and coordinator of ASEAN Burma, which is also known as the Alternative ASEA Network on Burma. I became an activist in the Burma movement uh, in 1988 when I was a student activist in Sydney and continued my association, my support for the movement since then. I'm Malaysian. And um, uh, we started Altsian Burma uh, 25 years ago in October 1996 in Bangkok as a way of connecting the um, democracy movement in Burma with diverse democracy and human rights movements in Southeast Asia. Um, At this time, we do our work through advocacy, production of advocacy tools. At the moment, we are producing a monthly cool watch that covers, um, that summarizes developments in Burma since the coup, as well as other um, briefing materials that can be used for advocacy. And we also deliver a quite a big range of capacity building initiatives, trainings, including our Women of Burma program, as well as diverse trainings covering human rights and democracy, advocacy, um, atrocity prevention, and business and human rights. It has been eight months since the coup, uh, and you've been um, preparing that regular bulletin. Um, In those eight months, we're still seeing violence and bloodshed on the streets of Yangon. Uh, But the protest movement doesn't really stand a chance against Myanmar's military, I think, anyway. So firstly, can you tell us a little bit about whether there are any opposition forces and the the size and scale of them? Some people are describing the situation as a civil war. Would you agree? Are there two equally sized militaries involved? Um, Good question. Uh, What we have seen in the first eight months since the coup is uh, that there were 4,867 attacks that either targeted civilians or armed clashes that failed to protect civilians in different parts of the country. And that represents a 574% increase in these types of um, incidents on the same period last year. So, and looking at where these incidents happen, where civilians were hurt or even targeted with um, military violence is is quite shocking because it's gone from uh, more remote ethnic areas in the border in in different parts of uh, Burma to basically military and attacks and armed clashes across the country. It doesn't matter whether you're in a village or in a city. 
basically the violence is taking place everywhere. And what's happened since then is that I think the realization that there's armed conflict every in every part of the country and in places like the West, which is in, in uh, Sagang region, as well as um, uh, in uh, Loikor and Damoso in Kaya State or Kareni State in the East, the military have launched airstrikes and attack helicopters on civilian um, uh, on civilian communities and put them under siege. So, you know, in Kaya State, for example, half the population has been displaced by armed conflict, mainly military attacks. And in those places, even churches have been targeted because internally displaced people have been trying to seek shelter in churches. And then those churches became a military target because there were civilians hiding in there. So if you talk, you want to talk about a civil war, it is a civil war. It's happening in every part of the country, not just in Yangon, where the incidents of violence are a little bit more, um, a little bit more uh, uh, well-documented and well-reported. And uh, are people fighting back? Good question. In the first wave of resistance immediately after the coup in February, we saw many young people, including women, LGBT community workers of very diverse um, parts of the population joining together to in street uh, protests against the military. And as crackdowns became more and more harsh, as, as people were actually targeted with snipers and we lost a lot of colleagues um, because they were assassinated or they were killed in custody, we, we started to see that uh, folks found different ways of resisting. There was a, a quiet strike where people stayed off the streets and refused to go to work and school. There are running strikes, what they call running strikes, where it's a flash mob protesting the military. There's still flash mobs taking place all over the country in peaceful um, resistance. But at the same time, eventually, people started to feel that the international community had not supported them. Nonviolent resistance was not delivering results because nonviolent resistance was not backed up with comprehensive and uh, decisive action in the international community. We still have resistance trying to talk about Burma on the UN Security Council. We still have resistance at UN General Assembly and at the Human Rights Council because Countries like Russia and China are protecting the junta, whereas governments like Australia seem to be uh, apathetic about what's going on. They're just not doing enough. So we saw this and we and that sent a message to people on the ground that they had to find ways to defend themselves. So now we've seen a spawning of the PDF, um, People's Defense Force, people who were protesting in the past who saw their friends and relatives killed in the streets um, by the military, by grenade attacks or snipers, or even just out and out violence being beaten to death in the streets. They said, well, we are going to find our way. We have to defend our communities ourselves because nobody else is coming to our defense. And so we've seen PDFs start up in all over the country. And in September, 
the NUG, the National Unity Government, which represents more than 70% of elected MPs, as well as um, diverse ethnic nationality groups, officially declared war in the country. They declared a civil war. And that is basically a sign that, um, firstly, a sign that uh, wake up call for the rest of us that we've been too slow in, in addressing the issue. And secondly, it's um, uh, an attempt by the National Unity Government to, uh, to push all these armed forces, both the new ones and the old ones, the ethnic armed organizations that have uh, five decades long wars with the Burmese military to follow, uh, to comply with a code of conduct that's consistent with international law. We'll get to that code of conduct um, in a minute because there are some implications with the failure to follow that in relation to the ASEAN summit uh, later this month. But I, I want to just focus a little bit more on Myanmar for a moment. We've talked about the violence, but what I want to look at is the economy because the economy has taken a major hit in the last eight months, although it wasn't particularly strong before the coup. We That needs to be said. Uh, but currently we're seeing soaring fuel and food prices, people plummeting below the poverty line. What's the situation for ordinary Burmese people away from the conflict points? It's really difficult for anyone in Burma to, to say they're away from the conflict points because conflict is happening all the time. It might not be a conventional war in the sense of tanks rolling down the streets, but even in places like Rangoon, which is basically the equivalent of Sydney or Melbourne, um, people are being shot in the street. Um, there are uh, resistance forces uh, sabotaging and even trying to blow up um, military companies, military economic installations. So we, we are seeing explosions, we're seeing killings, even in Rangoon. Uh, so it's very difficult to say there's no there's a place where you can be away from the conflict. So um, that's one thing to know. The other thing to understand too is that um, the military's disproportionate violence to resistance actually has spiraled the economy to the point where within eight short months, the local currency, the Myanmar chart, has lost half of its has lost more than half of its value. It's at the lowest rate in its history. That's one thing to understand. The other thing, too, is that the military instituted, um, the military junta instituted internet blackouts, extended internet blackouts and internet curfews for so many months, and that it affected the banking industry, and that 80% um, of all banks, including uh, banks and bank branches, have shut down in the country. And people actually have to queue in Yangon. They have to queue for hours to try and get access to an ATM that works. So um, we're seeing a huge problem in terms of cash flow. But also, uh, local people have been trying to share their resources. And a lot of people, young people who tried to donate food in the street, especially to communities that were, were, were affected by military attack were themselves arrested uh, because this was done without the permission of the military junta. 
it and and let's not forget that um, Burma is in the grip of a very lethal and devastating wave of COVID. Um, and in this picture, the military has worsened the situation because they actually targeted health workers at protests, health workers providing uh, emergency care at protests. They were shot or beaten up or arrested um, because they were considered members of the civil disobedience movement. So even the, um, the previous head of the national vaccination program was hunted down arrested and then charged with treason, which is a capital offense because she spoke to the national unity government. So you can already start to see doctors and, and other health workers are being targeted for arrest or even for killing um, people and they're being persecuted. And then we have this huge COVID, um, uh, devastating wave of, the, of COVID where thousands of people are dying a day. So, the, when we talk about the economic impact, what we're seeing is local people trying to help themselves and help each other and still being blocked from doing that by the military's junta's heavy handedness. Um, in, in, in August, a local woman, a local activist who was actually um, distributing oxygen concentrators for free was arrested as a threat to security as a terrorist, whereas the military then put um, uh, restrictions on factories producing oxygen not to sell canisters to local people. The military uh, took control of these factories to prevent um, oxygen from going out to the civilian population. So it, 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 with COVID and the coup, the violence of the coup, and the military worsening the impacts of the pandemic, we're actually seeing a very desperate situation. Um, and, and this is actually, and, and in, in the border areas, for example, in Karen state, in areas controlled by the Karen National Union, where activists feel safer, many activists who could no longer continue their work from the cities actually fled to Karen, to Karen areas. And because of this, those areas were also subjected to airstrikes as the military sought to break the alliance between um, mainly Burman activists and their Karen hosts. So the, in Karen state, for example, um, people are being displaced by airstrikes simply because they gave shelter to um, activists from the main cities who are looking for, for safety in order to, to continue their activism. So we have this um, situation, but also we can see the push, the, the push against military and the military businesses is very strong. Um, in September alone, civilian resistance destroyed 84 towers used by military-owned telecommunication company. Um, and, and so we can see people feel that it's all or nothing now. We've come to the stage of it's all or nothing. Resistance is the thing that you have to do. You have no other choice now if you're going to survive this military coup.
Well, I think the international community has some demands that relate to the things that you talked about, um, particularly in relation to um, the COVID, the spread of COVID, um, but also just the, the sheer amount of um, violence being used by the military against um, Myanmar's people. ASEAN is scheduled to meet later this month and and. There, there are a, a range of those demands being placed on the on the junta. Other than the ones we've already talked about, what else is ASEAN demanding of the military junta? And and they're also threatening to bar um, the, the 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 military junta from participating in the ASEAN summit. How significant would a barring be in this political climate? Well, you know, ASEAN. Uh, looking at what's happened since ASEAN adopted its five-point consensus in April, uh, it's pretty clear that they should already have made that decision without, without threat. They should have already started talking to the National Unity Government, which is basically the parallel government in Burma made up of, mainly made up of civilians elected in the last election. But um, ASEAN put together a five-point consensus at a meeting in April at which they invited Senior General Min Aung Lai, the, the coup leader, um, but did not invite uh, the national, uh, basically the national unity government or any other political stakeholders. So that was a fatal error. And they actually demanded that should be an immediate cessation of violence and that parties shall ex exercise restraint. That's in April. The conflicts actually worsened since then and spread even further. Constructive dialogue amongst all parties concerned should commence. That has not happened at all. And ASEAN has not actually encouraged that. They, ASEAN should have actually taken uh, uh, put, created some momentum by engaging all parties anyway. So ASEAN cannot expect all parties to have a dialogue when it is not dialoguing with all parties. It's simply talking only to the junta. And um, they, they, they actually decided in April to appoint a special, a special envoy. And it took six months for the special envoy to be appointed. And, um, and uh, they also talked about providing humanitarian assistance. Humanitarian assistance provided by all, uh, by ASEAN has not reached the ground. There's still not. Uh, there's still um, so many barriers because the um, ASEAN Humanitarian Assistance Center has actually doesn't have the means or the political will to to go beyond. Um, talking with the authorities, cooperating authorities, they haven't formed their relationships with ethnic areas where there's most humanitarian need. Um, and so we really do have this problem. The ASEAN Special Envoy was supposed to go to Burma and meet with Aung San Suu Kyi um, and all the other uh, stakeholders, but that hasn't happened. The military junta has refused to allow ASEAN to have a meeting with Aung San Suu Kyi. So um, there's now some disquiet that perhaps you know, Indonesia and Malaysia are, are not happy about what's been happening. Indonesia and Malaysia are particularly concerned that the situation has actually deteriorated on the ground. But, um, but, uh, ASEAN, but uh, ASEAN in general has been actually quite slow to react. In fact, 
several months ago, ASEAN, some of the ASEAN members tried to block um, uh, an arms embargo um, in the UN General Assembly resolution on Myanmar. And they're still um, not, they're still not convinced. They still haven't actually been supportive of a comprehensive arms embargo on the country. So here we see, even before uh, Burma opened up in 2012, the Burmese military and Burma itself has been quite a divisive issue in ASEAN and ASEAN's uh, ongoing response to the coup has been divided and fragmented because there is, um, there is a faction, there is a factionalization of ASEAN particularly countries like um, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam uh, usually side with Burma, Myanmar against countries like Indonesia or Malaysia or the Philippines that might be a little bit more progressive. So this is playing out. Um, this, is, this, this whole conflict and this, device, this division within ASEAN is playing out. Um, we don't think that ASEAN will actually have the political will as a body to act on principle. International community's expectation of ASEAN to be able to help solve this problem is, um, is actually been a fatal error and we are seeing the impacts on the ground. The international community cannot wait for ASEAN to deliver. ASEAN's not going to deliver because it still doesn't know how to act on principle. And it still is divided about how to handle this issue. What we really need to do is uh, international community needs to work with ASEAN member states like Indonesia and Malaysia to push this issue to the UN Security Council. The military junta does not respect ASEAN it respects the UN Security Council. You, went, you mentioned Aung San Suu Kyi, um, former leader or however you want to describe her, deposed leader, but currently detained by the military junta. And she, her trial has begun actually um, in relation to what I would call trumped up charges by the military junta, actually very strange, um, seemingly strange charges, including um, using walkie-talkies etc. Where's her trial at and what do you think the likely outcome will be of this this trial? Well, um, this the we need to understand that this coup is really the personal project of Senior General Min Aung Lai, who is extremely paranoid of uh, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's popularity and extremely paranoid that the NLD will win any future election. So the main project of this coup was basically for Min Aung Lai to get himself installed as president before he, he aged out of the military in July. And he tried to push Aung San Suu Kyi to appoint him. And when she refused, this is what happened. This is what led to the coup. So the part of this is really a highly personalized feud between senior general Min Aung Lai, the coup leader, and Aung San Suu Kyi. And so it's not surprising that Aung San Suu Kyi will continue to be um, subjected to increasing numbers of, of court, uh, court charges. She's actually facing up to 11 different court charges 
And if she were convicted on all charges, she would face a cumulative potential prison sentence of over 100 years. You know, Burma is a Buddhist country that believes in reincarnation. And we're going back to the practice of the previous military uh, junta, where they would actually saddle someone with multiple prison sentences of over 100 years. So, and we would often joke that 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 the junta hates you so much that they want you to spend this, the, your next life in prison as well. Um, so we, we're trying to, we, we are seeing that um, uh, it's not just Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, it's actually President Win Mian, uh, the NLD president who was also deposed um, and other national and local leaders who, were, who are being subjected to multiple trumped up charges it's a form of judicial persecution. Um, even seen, even Australian advisor, economic advisor Sean Tunnell from Macquarie University has also um, been subjected to um, trumped up charges in court and uh, and been denied access from uh, access to proper legal representation or even access to. Australian consular support. So we know very clearly there's not going to be a fair trial for any of these people. And we know that they will be subjected to increasing numbers of trumped up charges in order to tie them up in court and to keep them in detention. And this is also why we have been focusing on the emerging new leaders who have been leading this movement, as well as the National Unity Government, which is proving to be much more progressive in its policies and much more responsive to, uh, to the movement than the, than the NLD government led by Aung San Suu Kyi. That was Debbie Stoddard from the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma about the worsening humanitarian crisis and civil war in Myanmar. And that brings us to the end of today's program of Accent of Women. This week's program was produced in my study at home with the incredible support of 3CR staff. I want to extend a very big thank you to them for ensuring that this program is still able to be heard right across the country, even though Melbourne remains in lockdown. Accent of Women receives financial assistance from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Accent of Women's theme music was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.